For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt says businesses can start reopening with some getting the go-ahead this weekend. Starting today, barbershops, hair and nail salons could open their doors with restaurants, Movies, theaters, movie theaters and gyms allowed to open next Friday. Neva, is now the time to be opening? Well, I think the, these are the questions that have to be asked. And I think we've seen that the Oklahoma City mayor said that uh, the, the closure would continue through April 30th and Norman through May 1st. So while the governor has made this blanket um, uh, reopening um, position for the state, I mean, certainly some of these municipalities are are uh, taking taking their own look at it and continuing to uh, abide by what they had already put in place as their dates. So, um, you know, there clearly there's a there are differences of opinion on what should happen and when uh, this open up and recovery recover safely plan that the governor uh, and his task force have put in place uh, is certainly at odds with even the state medical association president who came out and basically said that, uh, without widespread testing, that, uh, that this is, uh, that this is a, a problem, uh, and the timing is certainly a problem from their standpoint. So I, I think in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a lot of things start to get sorted out, but, uh, there's probably in the minds of many Oklahomans going to be once again, as many questions as answers right here, as we try to navigate through the these very uncharted waters. Ryan. You know, I, I know that the, the governor is is desperate to get Oklahoma up and running again, but I hate to bust his bar, burst his bubble, but um, we're just not ready yet. I mean, there hasn't been the kind of widespread testing that's uh, that's needed. The, um, the kind of, the, the lack of leadership that we're seeing here is just really reckless. And, it, and it mag- it's magnified by the political waves uh, that this is going to send around the state. And we've already seen, you know, Mayor Bria Clark out of Norman, uh, talk about the, the danger in a, in a patchwork reopening situation uh, where we're reopening to, we haven't seen the, even the, the kind of measures that the Trump administration has said. And those, those really aren't, those are even more aggressive than what almost every single public health expert in the nation is saying we need to abide by. But Oklahoma is going even beyond that. You know, the, the Trump administration has said before we reopen, even in stages, we've got to have widespread testing and you've got to have a couple of weeks of decline in, in hospitalizations. And we haven't seen that in Oklahoma. So we're just, we're not ready. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried that this is going to create pressure on mayors. You know, you've got the mayors in Tulsa and Oklahoma City have more political clout. They're probably going to be able to, and the legal authority to continue those restrictions. But some of these smaller communities, they're going to feel political pressure to follow the governor's uh, leadership here. And I'm, I'm afraid that the vacuum uh, that's created is is going to endanger a lot of vulnerable Oklahomans in particular. Neva, do you think that uh, Governor Stitt bowed to the pressure from some of these right wing groups who had been marching on the Capitol and on city halls well, to op- reopen? I, 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 bowing to the pressure may uh, may or may not be the right terminology. I think it is clear when you look at. Uh, that the uh, the task force that the governor formed, that was led by the uh, the state chamber president, that there was a great deal of push by uh, small businesses and and large alike to start to reopen um, uh, business in Oklahoma. And this three tiered approach, the question will be uh, as it moves through the tiers. Uh, if there is any type of uh, anything that happens that starts the numbers back the uh, the other direction, uh, how 
uh, how will we be in terms of pulling back on business open openings and uh, you know in 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 light of trends if they reverse so I think it I think the next time it may be more difficult and more challenging and I think this is again one of these uh, questions you can look at polls all day long and you can you can find arguments to be made that that uh, you know uh, where Oklahomans are on it I think right now uh, the polls that I've seen suggest that it's basically about an even split. I mean, we've got people very strongly divided on both sides of this, and we'll just have to see how these uh, uh, how these uh, leaders uh, move on. Uh, Ryan, same question. Do you think there was a little bit of a pressure there? I think that the decision by the governor here is 100% political. Uh, I think that um, you know we're these shouldn't be. Uh, economic decisions. I know the economy is hurting. A lot of Oklahomans are hurting right now. Um, and these shouldn't be political decisions. I know that a lot of politicians are feeling heat um, from these. They, they look like lo- local uh, manifestations of, of, of protest at city halls and state capitals, but they're really led by a larger group of within the conservative movement nationally. The uh, the New York Times Daily podcast that airs on KOSU every day uh, in the in the afternoons. The broadcast from this last Wednesday, uh, I think, was an important look into what is really driving those protests. And it's political. These need to be public health decisions. If the governor's leadership here, it's not just going to be uh, the political um, uh, the political influence that it has on mayors. But if you look at vulnerable populations, if they see the governor saying it's time to reopen, you're going to see those vulnerable populations because they want social interaction, in particular, older Oklahomans. You know, my, my grandmother's going to want to go back to the beauty salon, uh, not necessarily because she wants to get her hair done, because she wants to see her friends, uh, that people want to go to church. And if they see that lack of leadership, they're not going to stay home. And, and I'm afraid that the we this is a real haphazard approach. The governor said that if they see a spike, but that spike's a two week delay. But if they see a spike, they're going to roll it back. Well, what does that spike look like? How do they make that decision? And the governor's office doesn't seem to be clear on what that looks like. This is this is really reckless, and it's it's reckless because it is political and not driven by public health. I think it is important to note, though, that in this phase one, as they as they are rolling this out, uh, they are asking Oklahomans to practice social distancing, to minimize non-essential travel. Uh, they have given guidelines to churches and uh, and businesses in terms of. Uh, uh, the need not only for the social distancing and the sanitation standards, but but a lot of specifics, such as uh, uh, in the in the case of churches not having the uh, uh, the in-house nurseries, not having food and drink, uh, um, uh, very specific uh, very specific guidelines uh, that they are asking to be adhered to. And as Oklahoma businesses open back up. Uh, the employers are being asked to formulate plans uh, so that their employees uh, have uh, certain new uh, uh, parameters and conditions to uh, returning to the workplace. So schools are going to remain closed. Uh, visits to nursing homes will remain prohibited. So there are criteria in place in phase one. And as they move to phase two and phase three, additional uh, guidelines have been uh, put forward and are out and openly available uh, through uh, being advanced through social media, websites, and other ways to get the get the the information disseminated to Oklahomans across all 77 counties. So I think we'll just have to see how this moves forward in in the next few weeks. As I said before, 
The State Board of Equalization declares a revenue failure allowing for the funding of the government through June 30th. The board, chaired by Governor Stitt, also learned the state is facing a $1.3 billion shortfall for the coming fiscal year starting July 1st. Ryan, how does Oklahoma fix this? I, I think that we are going to need a lot of political imagination, and um, there are going to be some really tough decisions moving forward uh, for, the, for the state of Oklahoma. The, the budget implications for this are going to be you know, far-reaching. I know that it's difficult for the Board of Equalization to look out beyond a year or maybe even two years in, in terms of forecasting for budgets. Um, but what we're thinking about with, with the slowdown in oil production, uh, which, which is going to happen, a lot of those whale, wells, you don't just restart them. Uh, you know, some of them could go dormant for a very long time, if not forever. Um, and then the, the fallout from that in terms of uh, income tax collections, gross production taxes, uh, we're going to see uh, budgets well into the future where there are going to be some really difficult decisions for lawmakers and some some pretty steep cuts uh, on the horizon. And it's it's important to remember that those steep cuts are going to come on top of a state government that even though we've seen some improvement in revenue over the years and improvement in investments, um, we still never really recovered uh, from uh, decades-long cuts uh, to core state services. So those cuts are on top of cuts. And um, the difficult decisions are really not going to be between, you know, um, you know, scaling back programs. They're going to be about eliminating programs at the state level. And um, that's that's going to require a lot of political leadership and a lot of political courage over the next several years. Neva. Well, I think what we saw with the Board of Equalization was kind of this continuing uh, divide between the governor and uh and his folks and the legislative leadership. I mean, there was uh, um, even even during that meeting, Attorney General Hunter, who's a member of the Board of Equalization, um, he expressed his hope that this $1.6 billion in, in federal um, COVID-19 relief funds that are earmarked for Oklahoma, that they will be able to offset some of the losses. Um, right now, we're paying for things that are COVID-19 related in this budget year. And so uh, even though the governor's kind of taken this position that uh, that, that money is, is not going to have that kind of flexibility, um, there's, certainly, there's certainly a great dispute on that. And uh, Attorney General Hunter and um, uh, the uh, Budget appropriators certainly uh, believe that uh, that that may well be the case. So there's a lot of uncertainty with these numbers. I mean, the the uh, the fact that you had the February the February Board of Equalization report showed an 8.2 billion basically of authorized spending by the legislature. These latest projections showing about a billion four less. I mean, so. So we've got this, you know, we've got this conflict going on. And I think, you know, the the governor basically said, hey, lawmakers have a tough job to do. Uh, You know, let's see what happens. But bottom line is um, they are making, you know, very, you know, very deliberate, very deliberative um, efforts to address um, FY21 and moving forward, knowing that this is, I mean, that this is going to be for the next couple of years, again, for Oklahoma, very tough financial straits to navigate through, just like Ryan said. Um, I mean, the budget busting uh, numbers uh, related to oil and gas, as well as the fact that we've had the economy basically shut down uh, already two months this year, not going to quickly uh, reinvigorate itself. 
we have a lot of uh, a lot of implications on the budget. But I think that uh, I, I think that the, um, the the somewhat stalemate uh, that the that the governor is projecting is unfortunate because um, you know lawmakers have faced these hurdles before. This is not new. I mean, uh, do we hold education harmless? And that's fifty percent of the of the of the budget, which means that you have more exaggerated cuts for the remaining 50%, big questions uh, looming. And I think uh, we're not going to see those answers uh, quickly, but I think uh, as they begin to really drill down into these numbers, hopefully there can be uh, a better chemistry between all the parties so that they're all dealing with all of the facts on the table at the same time. And there was already some infighting, Ryan, going on with the, the just this year's fiscal budget. Yeah, the you know the the board of equalizations meeting was actually supposed to happen over uh, a week ago. Yeah, I mean all all the, all the weeks kind of moved together. I can't remember if it was a week right. or two weeks at this point, but um, you know the board of equalizations meeting was abrupt, abruptly canceled in a political move uh, by the governor. Whenever the digital transformation fund uh, was targeted by the legislature for current fiscal year cuts uh, in order to. Uh, by the legislature's viewpoint, make it work so that we could get through this year without cutting other core state services. I say other core state services. The digital transformation fund is not a core state service, um, but it was it was a political fight, and there were some egos involved. And so when they when they finally did come around to meet, what that did is it meant that legislation that the uh, uh, Senate and House had put together uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago. Now all three pieces of that uh, that budget. Uh, proposal that the legislature that the legislature put together, all of those have become law at this point because the, you know, we we saw the the de- declaration of a revenue failure by the board of equalization was the final piece of that puzzle. So, you know, we're looking at you know current fiscal year right now seems to be that's that's done. Uh, the bigger question is moving forward for that FY twenty one and then and beyond. Um, and yeah, it's it is unfortunate that we're we're seeing. Um, you know, just you know, the typical politics as usual uh, bleed into this uh, at a moment whenever uh, we really need people to, when we really need people to set aside their uh, their political differences and, and come together. Well, and when you talk about politics, Ryan, I mean one of the, one of the political dimensions to what happened on Monday was the fact that lawmakers had uh, had uh, taken the governor to the Supreme Court, which was scheduled uh, on Tuesday. So the um, uh, the actions that were taken by the Board of Equalization on Monday basically uh, uh, negated that. Uh, lawmakers were, uh, took back their uh, um, their suit from the court. And so all of that, as you say, was resolved. The three bills were passed. The budget for the, the current fiscal year uh, is, is finished out. And now, as, as we always see when we're in April and May of any legislative uh, session, they're now down to crunch time of trying to uh, craft this budget uh, with a lot of you know, with with a lot of floating information and numbers out there, so that they they really have a, a a tall order this year. And some would say that that's kind of a given every year, but I think in in the climate that we're in right now, maybe even more so. Well, just real real quick, just how bizarre it is that we we'd had this entire conversation. Just the, the times that we live in right now, the legislature sued the governor in the Supreme <laughs> Court, and it's like, yeah. You know, it's it's just another thing that's happened right now. So yeah, let's not pretend that the governor uh, called this board of equalization meeting because he had uh, decided that well 
this is the right thing to do. His hand was forced uh, in, the, in the next tactic by the legislature by suing him before the Supreme Court. And before he got a terrible decision out of the Supreme Court that I think would have had a negative impact on his idea of executive authority, he went ahead and called the Board of Equalization meeting. The governor did settle with two Oklahoma tribes over gaming compacts. The new deals were reached with the Comanche Nation and the Oto Missouri tribe, but 10 other tribes remain in legal dispute with the state. Neva, there appears to be some dispute as to what the what the governor did was even legal. <laughs> well, the dispute and the attorney general basically uh, coming out and saying that the new agreements aren't legal. Um, and here we have two small tribes, a deal made with the governor where basically he calls legislative leaders uh, just moments before a news conference and says, you know, something's getting ready to happen. No, no consultation whatsoever. Whatsoever. And frankly, uh, what we saw once again was this fiery exchange uh, between uh, uh, Speaker McCall and uh, and uh, President Pro Tem Greg Treat, uh, who who sent the governor uh, immediately a three page rather scathing uh, direct letter where they they make the point that uh, uh, during their meeting, uh, they learned for the first time just moments before that announcement, as I said, uh, given no real details, and they made it very clear their opinion that the reason that gaming policy was set up with the separation of powers is that it is uh, the governor only has a, a certain amount of authority, and the the rest of that uh, falls to the legislature. So. Um, and specifically, even though they said that there were many points uh, um, that uh, that were flawed in in what the governor had done, that specifically the legislature has not yet authorized sports betting in Oklahoma, and that was one of the the core elements of this deal that he made with these two tribes. So, um, I mean, we haven't seen the end of this yet, and it falls in the midst of of the ongoing mediation that I think now goes through the end of May with the other uh, 10 tribes, uh, the, the largest tribes in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. um, on this on this dispute. So it's going to be fascinating to see. But once again, the governor, as 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 the as the uh, two legislative leaders laid out in detail, um, basically slamming pretty hard the notion that what he had done had any legal basis whatsoever. Ryan. I don't I don't think that it has any legal basis whatsoever. It was a PR stunt. Uh, I feel like Governor Stitt wakes up every morning and his advisors tell him, Governor, you've done everything you can uh, to pick as many unnecessary fights as possible uh, to make uh, to squander the political capital and goodwill that you walked into this office with and to, to make sure that you don't have a viable primary opponent. And the governor looks at his advisors and he just says, well, hold my beer. Uh, let's, you know, what, like watch, watch what I can do next. Uh, and that's what, this is bizarre. Uh, and if you, if you look at the response, uh, Cherokee principal chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. Uh, said that he had a lot of, you know, he, it was reported, he said he had all the respect in the world for the tribal sovereignty of these two tribes and their ability to, uh, to sit down and to negotiate in their, uh, nation's best interest their sovereign interest with the state of Oklahoma, but he said that there's wisdom and solidarity. Uh, and that's among more than 30 uh, nations involved in, in gaming in Oklahoma. Um, and so the, this is, this isn't going anywhere. It's, it's undermined the governor's position even further in the ongoing federal litigation. Um, and I think that it's undermined his political, um, you know, right now that, that federal lawsuit is in mediation. 
And uh, a goal of mediation is to walk in and have an honest, good faith conversation about what your what each party's particular goals are and try to reach a resolution. And what the governor did with this, again, it was it was a PR stunt. Um, and it undermines, you know, the the likelihood that mediation is going to work. I think mediation was a long shot to begin with. Uh, whenever you've got two parties that are this far apart and what they see as their particular legal positions, um, you know, the, the governor's imagined legal position and the actual legal position is the one that's being embraced by, by the tribes and, and I think by a large number of the legislature. Uh, this you know, was it, another unforced error by the governor and, and one that uh, I think that, um, you know, is, is moving us further away from resolution with the overall compact than closer to one. Neva. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you look at these two, these new compacts and the the sites uh, uh, that that he's talking about, giving three, no, three new locations uh, uh, to each of them uh, to um, operate uh, new casinos, the fact that all of that still has to have approval from the U.S. Department of the Interior. And one of the things in the letter from McCall and Treat uh, that they specifically said was, uh, you know, please refrain from submitting or allowing any of these documents to be submitted to the Department of the Interior for review because it would be um, not only untimely, they said, and inappropriate, but a waste of resources. So, I mean, they doubled down on this uh, on this with great specificity. And I think, um, um, you know, as you say, Ryan, I mean, how does this bode well for the governor to continue uh, to uh, pick these fights uh, at a time when this federal lawsuit uh, is still uh, in, in mediation has been dragging on now for months. And as we know, all of the implications that come with this just from the budgetary considerations of the 150 million that's factored in um, uh, in the past for education out of, uh, out, out of these uh, casino revenue funds. So there are so many things that are all so meshed together here that every time we turn around, there's another complicating factor that seems to be injected into it. And it's a big mess and we'll just have to, we'll have to see. But at the end of the day on this, it will be the courts, it looks like, that are going to make, uh, uh, make the definitive statement on what the governor uh, is trying to do. Groups involved in uh, are, are involved in a lawsuit with the election board over mail-in ballots. Uh, Ryan, what what's going on here? Well, the for for uh, forever election Oklahoma is either one of uh, is the only state, or depending on how you look at it, one of three states that still require uh, or require at all any sort of notarization of an absentee ballot that's mailed in. Um, that's an enormous burden in any election. Uh, we also re- put limits on the number of absentee ballots that any particular notary can notarize. This is a huge hurdle uh, to really opening up mail-in voting in the state of Oklahoma and making it easy and accessible to everyone. But in particular, in the middle of a pandemic, when we're asking people to so- be socially distant, um, you know, there are a lot of people that will greatly benefit from uh, increased mail, mail, vote by mail, absentee ballots in the state of Oklahoma, not the least of which are vulnerable poll workers, but also vulnerable voters that don't shouldn't have to risk their life to go vote. Um, and so under Oklahoma law, there is a provision that allows individuals to self-authenticate, uh, to basically sign an oath under penalty of perjury uh, that this that they are who they say they are and that this is their vote. Uh, and to you know, not have to have that notary requirement. If voters still want to go to a notary, they could, but this is an alternative 
the election board secretary was presented with this option. He can do it with a stroke of a pen. Um, and he's rejected that. And so I think that there's a likelihood that by the time that listeners are, are hearing this, that there will be litigation filed on behalf of vulnerable voters in particular, uh, asking for the state to uh, recognize this other option and that's already in law. Legislature doesn't have to do anything. Governor doesn't have to do anything. It's already in law. It's been a law since, I think, 2002. Neva, do you think the state election board secretary should do something about making it uh, maybe a little bit easier for mail-in ballots, especially right now where we're having to deal? We might be coming up on a June primary where people can't go to the polling stations. Well, I think I think it, I think the the June uh, 30th primary certainly is a is a big question. Trying to uh, make these changes this this quickly and right before a major election, I think uh, raises a lot of uh, raises a lot of questions. And certainly one of the things I mean, when we talk about absentee ballots, I mean, it's important to remember that it's still a very small percentage of Oklahomans that have used uh, the absentee ballot. And we have we are one of, I think, 31 states that basically have an absentee ballot process that says you have no you don't have to have a reason. I mean, you can get an absentee ballot. Um, there is, in my mind, particularly when we start talking about changes, uh, not having notarization. I mean, even though uh, what Ryan is saying is that uh, they would basically be uh, attesting to the uh, to the validity of, of 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 what they're doing with their ballot, uh, it raises a lot of a, a lot of questions in terms of increasing voter fraud. When we talk about, uh, you know, one of the reasons why. Uh, the number of uh, signatures one notary can do was for that very reason that you couldn't have some notary uh, anywhere in the state of Oklahoma that was notarizing hundreds of, uh, of uh, uh, absentee ballots. So there are a lot of questions to be raised that are legitimate questions. And so I think the, the um, whatever this process takes, Hopefully, it will be in a manner that that will not uh, confuse the immediate election that's right on the forefront, which is the June 30 primary. Well, Ryan, I've got to ask you because I yes, uh, we don't have much time, but I, I do do want to ask it because my wife and I have, for the first time ever in my life, have thought, well, I'm going to do absentee ballot for June 30th because I'm not going to go to a polling station. We don't even know how to do it. And is that a well, concern that that? Yeah, you, you can go. You can go. You can go. Request your absentee ballot on the election board website. The instructions uh, that the election board sends out to voters uh, about how to complete their absentee ballot. Right now, the only thing that they're that they're allowing voters to do, with with a handful of exceptions, a small exceptions, is to get it notarized by a notary. And I know that we put these limits on notaries, but a lot of those reports of, of fraud, when I say all of them, I mean, you know, show, show me a, a real point of fraud where somebody, where a voter has been doing this and it's just not there. It's, it's really illusory. Um, and so the, the instructions, I, I agree with Neva, they need to be clear. They need to be understandable by voters. And I think that we're going to see a surge in absentee ballots, this, uh, especially for this June primary. But go to the election board website, uh, Secretary Xerox, they, uh, who is... He's done a really good job of, of trying to make that more easy to for voters to apply for that absentee ballot. Now we just need to make it easier for them to complete and return that absentee ballot. Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.